just feels like there's an extraordinary amount of love in the room right now. The love of the Father is just moving around this place. It's fantastic. So would you just open yourself up? Maybe it is love. God's love brings salvation. Salvation brings healing. Oh yeah, would you just let yourself be loved by the Father right now? For God so loved the world, right? For God so loved the world, right, church? You just let yourself be loved by God this morning. You know, God's a lot easier to believe in when you experience Him. Some of you are getting tired. You're getting tired of believing. Holy Spirit, come now. The Bible says, For the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit that He pours out on us. So Holy Spirit, come and would you just love your sons and your daughters? Just love everybody in the room, Father. Would you love our sick now in the name of Jesus? Would you love our hurting now in the name of Jesus? Would you love our frightened? Would you love our confused? Oh God, in the name of Jesus, would you love our anxious? Would you love Father, those who are hungry, in the name of Jesus. Oh God, would you come? Would you love our addicts, Lord, in the name of Jesus? Oh God, would you just come and love our gossips, Lord, in the name of Jesus? Would you love our adulterers in the name of Jesus, Lord? Would you love us, God? Oh God, would you love us? Would you love us, God? let your love pour out on us in the midst of who we are as we are we come to you and invite you to come now and love us you know it's a lot easier to say I love you too Lord when you let him say I love you first worship becomes second nature when you dwell as a recipient of the love of God. It becomes so natural just to say, I love you too, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and love every man and woman and young person in this auditorium right now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks. I got really good news for you. Ready? The Bible says that God loves us so much that he's willing to take us exactly as we are. Oh, no, I mean exactly as we are. I've read the Bible from Genesis to Maps, and this is my conclusion, that God loves us exactly as we are, and he's willing to take us exactly as we are. As we are. That means that you don't have to get yourself ready to have a relationship with God. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to accomplish certain things. You don't have to know this many Bible verses that God loves you as you are and He's ready to have a relationship with you if you will come as you are. In fact, not coming as you are will actually hinder your relationship with God. Did you know that? Coming with pretense. He calls that hypocrisy. He sees right through it and he says, come as you are, because I want to receive you, the Bible's saying, in your as-is condition. 
Some of you Craigslisters out there like me, you're always looking for that deal, aren't you? That thing that says you're going to take it as is. It's a legal term, as is, which means it's, a, it's, a, it's used to disclaim implied warranties for an item being sold. It says, nope, you bought it, it's yours. Denotes that the seller is selling and the buyer is buying an item in whatever condition it presently exists and that the buyer is accepting the item with all faults, whether or not they are immediately present. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ right here. God is inviting you into a relationship as you are with all of your faults, whatever condition in which you may exist, as you exist, with all of your faults, whether they're on the inside or the outside, whether we can see them or whether only God can see them, the Bible says he'll take you in as-is condition. It's part of something that he's doing because his plan is to make you into a new creation, to take you from your as-is condition and to make you into a new creation. Yes? That's what God does. That's what the gospel's about, is to take us as we are and to make us, transform us, into a new creation. Last week I told you probably too much about my penchant for Craigslist and just searching for that deal, that as is. I, by the way, I need to tell you, I got a little victory this week. It's been 48 hours since I've looked at Craigslist. Thank you for praying. <laughs> 48 hours. I'm not even jonesing for it. Thankfully, there's been basketball to watch, but to keep me occupied. But <laughs> oh my gosh, I told you about how I just love to search Craigslist and look for that deal, that thing, that undervalued thing, that underappreciated thing, that, that thing that just needs to come into my barn, that tractor. It just needs to come into my barn. It just needs to dwell under these hands. I just need to reclaim it and redeem it. Make it into something new and then deliver it back out into the life that I think it was intended to live. That's the gospel of Jesus, isn't it? That's the gospel of Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's exciting. Now, before you get too excited about this, this morning I need to offer you a warning. And the warning is that before God will make you into his new creation... He's going to take you down to your core. He's going to take you all the way down to your crankshaft. He's going to take you down to the place that nobody else can see. And something has to happen there in order for him to make you into a new creation. Because being a new creation isn't just about getting a new paint job. In the tractor business, we call that a liquid overhaul. <laughs> being a new creation is, is not just about getting a new paint job, about fixing up the outside, but it's about something deeper. It's about something completely new from the inside out. In the tractor world, it looks like this. This is what every one of my tractors looks like at some point in the process. Stripped down to the core. Everything exposed. Nothing hidden. Even deeper than this, what you can't see is what 
I sometimes have to do on the inside of an engine. The part that no one will ever see. But that makes all the difference in the way that it is from there on out. Hello? Is this the gospel of Jesus Christ? Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, if you will. John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at some verses that are the account of a woman whom Jesus received absolutely in her as-is condition. Last week it was Peter. This week we have a new subject to study. John chapter 8, I'm going to begin in verse 2. It says, At dawn Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Lord, we invite the present power of your Holy Spirit to come and to make this live. Make this live in front of us again, Lord. Pour out your Spirit on it so that the Word of God comes to life in our eyes, in our minds, in our thinking, but more importantly, in our hearts, in that place that, that really guides us, that place from which we really live. We invite you, Holy Spirit, and I surrender myself to you, Lord. Whatever I've prepared works, Father, I pray that you use. Whatever won't, you'll change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we get looking too hard at this passage, let's deal with those brackets. See those brackets up at the top of your, a lot of your Bibles have some brackets up there, don't they? It says something like the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses. Now, I have this passage. How many of you have seen something like that in your Bibles, right? What that all about? Why does it say that? Well, it's because earliest manuscripts don't have this passage. So you got a Bible, right? It's in English, right? Prepare to gasp, but the Bible wasn't written in English. Prepare to gasp, but Jesus never spoke a word of English. Moses never spoke a word of English. The apostles never spoke a word of English. Nobody ever spoke a word of English until about 1,000 A.D. Did you know that? So this was not written in English. The Bible was revealed to certain people by God. The Scripture says it just as he wanted it to be on original manuscripts. Boink, 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 boink. God said perfect. Right? Guess how many of those original manuscripts we have? Zero. I think God did that on purpose. We'd worship them. I think we'd, I think we'd make a temple around them. We'd worship them. It's not about the manuscript. It's about the living word of God. Right? So what's happened is from those original manuscripts, God-fearing people painstakingly 
understanding what they were doing, copied these manuscripts, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Right? In addition to their fear of God was the oversight of the Holy Spirit, who's jealous for his word, who wants to make sure that this happens accurately. Well, this is happening for centuries. Well, in 1611, King James, the king of England, decided to authorize an English translation of the Bible from the available manuscripts. That's called the King James Bible, or more appropriately, the authorized version. And that, is because, that became then the English Bible from which most of the other English Bibles came. So you get it? So that's it. Here's what it says in English. Boom. Other people studied manuscripts, but they also relied heavily on the King James Bible to say, well, here's how we could also say it and still have it be true to God's intention. Well, during the last 400 years then, archaeologists have been digging around and have found earlier manuscripts than were available to King James. Is this making sense? And some of them began to notice that this passage wasn't appearing in earlier manuscripts. It went, right? In addition to that, they began to notice that these people called the church fathers, which essentially these, are, these were the, 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 the thinkers, the shapers of the church right after the apostles, that they weren't commenting on this passage in the way that they were commenting on all the other passages in the Bible. So they began to go, maybe it wasn't there. So when it says earliest manuscripts and ancient witnesses, that's what it's talking about. So scholars today have concluded that that probably was not in the original manuscript. Should we be concerned? Well, I think we should take note, but let's also look at what scholars say. Scholars, the same scholars are saying, probably wasn't in the original manuscript, but we think it's authentic. Reliable scholars say, we think this happened. We think Jesus did this. We think we can support, we know we can support from other things that Jesus did and the rest of the witness of the New Testament that it's consistent with who Jesus is. So take it. Take it. So while I think you should note it, I don't think you should reject it. I believe in my heart. I believe from study. I believe from my walk with the Lord that this happened. That there was a day when Jesus was teaching in the temple and the Pharisees saw their opportunity to try to trap Jesus again. We've seen that before, haven't we? Like on every other page. What's going on with these Pharisees? What exactly is their problem with Jesus? And what exactly is Jesus' problem with the Pharisees? Because they never had a good day. They never had a nice talk, did they? Never. Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers, which is where they kept dead people. They said, on the outside, you look all great, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. One of the three most terrifying scriptures for me is found in Matthew chapter 23, in verse 15, where Jesus said to these Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you do, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. What was Jesus' problem with the Pharisees? Jesus' problem with the Pharisees essentially was, I agree with Brennan Manning, that Jesus, that his problem with the Pharisees was that the Pharisees had reduced God to a small-minded, eternal, cosmic bookkeeper 
who could only be satisfied if you kept every, every jot and tittle of the law. That God was waiting for you to mess up so that he could act out his wrath in that, what was his true character. That was part of his problem. I think part of his problem also was that, that Jesus saw that they were, they were purporting a religion that was empty. It was devoid of encounter with the living God. You know, religion, empty religion, is the thing that man makes up when he gets tired of waiting for God. Did you know that? Religion is the thing that man makes up when he gets tired of waiting for God. So Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, right? And he was encountering God, yes or no? Big time, right? People are down below, and what are they doing? They're getting tired of waiting, and so what do they do? They throw all their jewelry into a fire, and they make a golden calf that they can worship, because religion is the thing that man makes up when he gets tired of waiting for God. Well, Jesus came, and he said, here I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So you can see why there would be friction from the get-go, right? Well, these people were threatened by Jesus. He was threatening everything about them, their religion, their station in life, their income. And Jesus came along, and he was this carpenter's son with no formal training, and thousands were coming to hear him speak. He was doing miracles. And so you can see where the problem is. This has to be stopped. And so the Pharisees, they brought this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, there's no reason to think she wasn't. We'll take the facts of the case from the account. She was caught in the act of adultery. And she was brought to Jesus in his presence as a way of tricking him. They figured it was a win-win situation. They said, they said, Jesus, the law of Moses said this woman should be stoned. What do you say? Well, if Jesus says, no, this is a new day. This is a new way. Then they had, they had opportunity and a case for accusing him that he didn't believe in the law of Moses. But if he said, you're right, stone her then they could say, see, he's not this big rabbi of love that he claims to be. They figured they had it. So Jesus gets down and writes. What are he's writing, huh? Maybe nothing. Maybe something amazing. He's writing. And he goes, basically... Yeah, I, I guess you got this right. Let him who is without sin go ahead and get us started here. Go ahead. Who will go first? Let him who is without sin go ahead and throw the first stone. The Bible says just one by one, they left until it was just Jesus, just Jesus and this woman. It says, where, where are they that condemn you? Uh, can you just picture this or 
can't you, can't you feel the weight of this thing, right? She says, no, no one condemns me. Just, you're the only one here. And he's the only one qualified to throw the first stone. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Now get up and go and leave your life of sin. He took her in her as-is condition, caught in the act of adultery, used, ashamed, humiliated, up for execution. Although you've got to admit that the Pharisees had not made a very good case. Who's missing from this scene? How many people does it take to commit adultery? Deuteronomy and Leviticus both say that if a couple is found committing adultery, both the man and the woman shall be stoned. Where was that man? I speculate he was standing in the crowd with a stone in his hand. That's the depravity of man, isn't it? Jesus took her in her as-is condition all by herself, all alone, humiliated, embarrassed, ashamed, and said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But I want you to notice, Jesus didn't leave her in that condition, right? He, he, he received her as she was, but he immediately said, no, that's not where you belong. Come on. Leave your life of sin. There's something better. So Jesus showed her mercy, but he didn't approve of her sin. we got to be careful here, church. we got to be careful that we don't confuse mercy with approval. That we don't confuse forgiveness with tolerance, with condoning sin. Jesus didn't approve of this adultery. He doesn't approve of your sin. He doesn't approve of my sin. But there's been a way made for that to be forgiven and for us to leave that life of sin and begin to live a new life, a walk of righteousness, a walk filled with the Holy Spirit, a walk that resembles Jesus, a walk that isn't weighed down by the, by the works of the flesh, but is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. This is God's plan for us. This picture here in, in John chapter 8 is a picture of the cross of Christ. This is a picture of the cross of Christ. What Jesus said to her is a picture of the coming cross. Jesus hadn't been to the cross yet, but he was on his way, wasn't he? And this is a picture of the coming cross of Jesus Christ. Because... The cross of Christ does not find Jesus saying, that's okay, about our sin. The cross of Christ does not find Jesus saying, yeah, that's okay. The cross of Jesus Christ finds Jesus saying, I'll cover this for you. I'll pay for this for you. It's not okay, but I've got this for you if you'll let me. That's the cross of Christ. I love Isaiah chapter 6. 
It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and all this cool stuff happens. Isaiah is there. And here is his reaction in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's suddenly struck by his relative unholiness compared to the presence of God. Look what happens next. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your guilt is taken away. Would you say that, please? Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. He didn't say, that's okay, Isaiah. He said, I have a remedy for that. I can deal with that. I can take care of that for you. This is a picture of the cross, isn't it? He took the live coal from the altar. It couldn't be much more clear that this is a picture of the cross, that Jesus Christ is offering forgiveness, release from our guilt, being absolved from guilt, and freedom from the curse. On the cross... Jesus met the demands of the justice of God, listen carefully, so that believers, those who place their faith in Christ, are no longer guilty. Not guilty. He said in Isaiah, your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away. Let's talk about guilt. You know, guilt is not a feeling. We have that phrase, are you feeling guilty about it? Guilt is not a feeling, right? Guilt is a condition. A person is either guilty or they're not guilty. The feeling that we're talking about is shame. A feeling of shame when we're found guilty or when we know we're guilty. But not everybody who violates the law of God, understands their guilt, and so they don't feel shame. And not every believer who has come to the cross understands that their guilt is taken away, therefore they have no reason to feel shame. Are you getting this? This gets a slightly, slightly tricky along the way. Shame is the feeling that we have when we are guilty. The cross of Christ, are you a believer? That's, that's good. You come to the cross? You trusting in Christ? Well, then the cross has absolved you of your guilt. You're not guilty. Jesus said it's finished. You come to him, it's done. Past, present, future sins. Because if you've noticed, yeah, you're not done sinning yet, right? We'll get to that. But you're not guilty. You're saying that blows my mind. Well, welcome to the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's from God. Should we be able to understand every bit of it? I'd begin to get suspicious that it wasn't really from God. but something that somebody made up. The cross absolves us of our guilt. When we experience that reality, then we become free from shame. 
Why? Because shame is the feeling that goes with the knowledge that you're guilty. When you get the knowledge you're not guilty, woohoo! There's no reason to feel shame. Are you following me? Please say so. I want to say this much. I want to say it this hard. A Christian has no business feeling shame because they've been declared not guilty and then should be free from shame. Hello? The Apostle Paul wrote a whole book about it in Galatians. He says, it's for freedom's sake that I've been set free. Let us stand firm again then. Told the Galatians, stand firm in your freedom and do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is the law. When you lay the law on yourself, you find out you're not perfect yet. You begin to believe you're guilty again, right? And when you begin to believe you're guilty again, what do you feel? Shame. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the whole thing. Say, you, sir, are not guilty. There's that other message coming in, right? Adam yeah, is coming in. But, 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 but. What about? Remember Tuesday? Remember, you know, right? Yeah, me too. Guess who that is? That's the devil. That'd be Satan. Jesus said you can all, you, you, Jesus said, he said, you know how you can tell when the devil's lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> Jesus said, these words out of his mouth, he says that lying is the devil's native language. That's what he does. You're still guilty. Remember Tuesday? Remember Tuesday? Remember Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> guilty? No. Because Jesus, you're trusting in Christ? You're not guilty. Maybe you argue, I should be guilty. Yeah, but you're not. Is your faith in Christ? Is your faith in what he did on the cross for, good for you? Then you're not guilty. That's the tr if you're not guilty, you have no reason to feel shame. If a Christian struggles with shame, a shame-based life, then what are they saying? I haven't fully experienced the freedom of guilt from the cross. It hasn't come yet. Yikes. And some of you are thinking, well, but I still sin, so aren't I guilty for that? No. How can that be? <laughs> Glory to God, right? That's the power of the cross. Are you trusting in Christ? I'm not saying you can live willy-nilly with this disingenuous faith in Christ. Guys, got it covered. You know you're not having faith in Christ if there's not a call of the Holy Spirit to live a new life. But you'll never live that new life perfectly. And so maybe you're asking, well, why do I feel badly when I sin then? That's not shame. That's conviction. Conviction and shame, two different things. Shame comes when you're guilty. Conviction comes when you're saved. It's a call of God to live the life he's called you to. But you're still forgiven. Conviction is God's loving invitation to a better life. So when you find yourself in sin and the Holy Spirit goes, Peggy, Peggy, Peggy. You shouldn't sit up front. You always sit up front. I never pick on you, do I? 
Today's your lucky day. <laughs> Peggy, what are you doing? You know, you're saying, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing down there? He's not saying I'm angry, I'm ashamed, I'm disappointed. He's going, is that what we talked about? <laughs> He's saying, conviction has come up here. Conviction is God's invitation to a better life. Shame is Satan's destructive announcement that you'll always be known by your sin. Shame is the thing that you see when you look in the mirror. Sinner. That's Satan talking. Now listen, shame is the devil's plan, part of the devil's plan, to lead you into separation and isolation. Because if you can get rich to be feeling enough shame, you'll start to wall off, won't you? You kind of get quiet. Vlad, get you feel shame. He can get you to go into the corner, into the dark corner. Because you feel shame. You don't want to share that. But you're not guilty. Romans, no, James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So the power of relationships here is at least that. That as you live in this kind of godly relationship with another brother, another sister in the Lord, someone to whom you can actually confess your sins... You can be prayed for in a way that you no longer feel shame. Woohoo! But when you buy the shame lie, you're actually isolating yourself and preventing that from happening. Is that making some sense? I hope so, because God's downloading it right now. <laughs> shame is the devil's plan to lead you into separation and isolation. Let me get back to my notes. Conviction is God's plan to lead you into relationships and belonging. Because conviction says, Rich, no, 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 no. What are you doing in there? That's not what we talked about. Where are your brothers? Why are you avoiding them? So it's a call back into relationships. Brene Brown wrote a beautiful book called The Gifts of Imperfection. And in it she said, Shame is the intensely painful experience of believing that we are hopelessly flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. She nailed it. Shame is that record that plays. You're flawed, you're hopelessly flawed, you're guilty, therefore unworthy of love, and unworthy of belonging. The cross makes us not guilty because Jesus took the punishment. If you're not guilty, then you have no reason to be ashamed. Shame is playing into the devil's hands who's trying to persuade you not to believe in the sufficiency of the cross and what Jesus did on it for you, did, it, did for you on it. This woman, she had every reason to be ashamed, yes? Because she was guilty. She, was, she surely was ashamed, humiliated. But when Jesus said, as a picture of the cross, well, neither do I condemn you. Romans 8, chapter 1, verses verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. You set free? 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Therefore, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I love that. This whole thing's God's idea. <laughs> your faith is a gift from him. He's the author of your faith. It's his, it's his idea to come get you. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Scorning its shame. He said, I'll take that and I'll smash it. Because if you're not guilty, you have no reason to be ashamed. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, I believe that this was the best day of this woman's life. I really do. This was the best day of this woman's life because of this. Because her adultery was finally out. There you go. That's who I am. She didn't have to hide it. She didn't have to secret it anymore. It was out. She was stripped to the bone. And now she could start the rebuilding process from the inside out. One of the most treasured verses in the Bible for me is 1 John 1, 9. I've said it a million times. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, not guilty, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not guilty. I think some of you here today want this. You're ready to confess to the Lord. You're ready to come out of shame and come into the freedom that the cross is offering you. You're ready to receive the remedy of the cross. You're, you're, ready, to, you're ready to come in your as-is condition. You're ready to test this and say, are you for real? As-is? And you're ready to make a personal response to this gospel. I mean, it's just kind of all dawning on you all at once going, oh, so you mean that being a Christian isn't just about getting a paint job? That's the last thing I do to a tractor. That's the easiest thing I do to a tractor. Way down in the darkness of crankshafts. Way down where you can't see where the hydraulic pump is. Way down where you'll just never even see that thing is where the real work is done. Hello? Some of you are ready, aren't you? Some of you are ready. You're glad you don't have to be brought up in front of the, the church and thrown down as an adulterer. But you're ready just to come out and get, I'm done with this. You're ready to receive the freedom that the cross brings. Some of you are just ready to be free from shame. Stop your shame eating, your shame living, your shame relationships. You're, you're just living out this sense of shame. Well, this is all I deserve, so it's how I'm going to live. You're shame talking. You're shame viewing. You're just living from a place of shame because you bought the devil's lie that you're still guilty. Well, Jesus said, you're not. Who are you going to believe? And you're ready to just come out of that shame, that shame-motivated life. Well, I've got good news for you. You can. 
Would you bow your heads with me, please? I'd like to lead the whole, whole church this morning in a prayer. I'd like to just say a line, and if you, from where you are, agree in your heart with that, what I just prayed, I'd like for you to pray it out loud. This is a prayer that would be, I'm happy to pray every day. You might be somebody who considers yourself a believer. Maybe you're a leader. Maybe you consider yourself to be a mature believer, but you might find great freedom in praying this prayer from your heart. You might be a person today who you're just ready. You're saying, I'm ready to come into real relationship with the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm ready to make it official. You can pray the same prayer. Pray it if it can come from your heart. Dear God, I want to know you. I want to be your child. I want to have all my sins forgiven. I want to be declared not guilty. I want to be freed from my shame. I want to turn away from my sins and live a new life. I want your son Jesus Christ to be my savior. I want your son Jesus Christ to direct my life. I want to trust Jesus as my savior and follow him as my Lord. Thank you, God, for saving me. Amen. Just keep your heads bowed for just a minute. I'd just like to ask, if you're a person here today and you just prayed that prayer for the first time and you, you, just ask, you just ask the Lord to come into your life and you're a Christian now. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time with all these heads bowed, could you just raise your hand and hold it up so I can see who you are? I see you, I see you, I see you. It's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. And also with these heads bowed, I wonder if you're a person, you just prayed that prayer and you've been here before, but something just happened and you believe you just came back to the Lord from a time of maybe wandering. Would you raise your hand so I could see who you are? I see you. I see you. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. Yes. Lord, thank you for these men and these women and these young people who have just lifted their hands. Lord, what, a, what an incredible privilege it is, God. We just rejoice with the angels in heaven, Lord. We give you praise and glory and honor and blessing for extending your hand of salvation into this room today, Lord. That Right now, that their names are being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. God, we trust your word to be true for that. And I thank you for these who have found their way back, Lord, into meaningful relationship with you through your son, Jesus. Thank you. Would you pour out your spirit on us, Lord, in a way that is 
we just spend these last few minutes together, your, your love will continue to do its work in this room, Lord. We bow before you. You are a king. You are a God. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to sing, and I'm going to ask for something. I'm going to ask that as we start singing that our prayer ministry people will go off to the sides, way over on the sides there, and you'll be there to pray for anybody who needs prayer for anything. And I'm going to step right down here, and I'm just going to wait just, just for those of you who raised your hands. That's all. Please don't come up to me right now. I'll be available later, but right now I want to just have a prayer with those who raised your hands. I want to give you a book. It's called Start Here. It's just some guidance into what to do next. And if you don't have a Bible, if you're a person who doesn't own a Bible, I want to give you a Bible. So in just a moment, we'll all stand and people will be on the sides to pray for you, for any and every and anything. And I'll be right here in the middle, just for those of you who raised your hands. All right. Would you please come? Let's stand together.